Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Hey, it's Crystal Arnold, founder of Money Morphosis and your hostess for the Money Wise Women Show. There is incredible opportunity in this time of transformation uh, for our economy and legal systems to support greater circulation in our local economies, to really improve the health and well-being of both people and planets. And we have seen the destructive forces of an extractive economic system and the corporate mandate for uh, increasing profit and extracting that into the hands of private um, private owners. And so I find that there are many people really working on innovative, practical solutions um, that actually bring uh, greater sovereignty and uh, economic justice into communities. And uh, this is why I have our guest on today, Janelle Orsi, is a lawyer, advocate, writer, and a cartoonist who is focused on cooperatives, the sharing economy, land trusts, shared housing, local currencies, and rebuilding the commons. Uh, So incredible and really encourage you to watch some of her cartoons, which we'll give you the link to uh, later. She is co-founder and executive director of the Sustainable Economies Law Center, which facilitates the growth of more sustainable and localized economies through education, research, and advocacy. Janelle has also worked in private law practice at the law office of Janelle Orsi, focusing on the sharing economy law since 2008. Uh, She's author of several books, including author of Practicing Law and the Sharing Economy, Helping People Build Cooperative Social Enterprise and Local Sustainable Economies, which came out in 2012. And she's also co-author of The Sharing Solution, How to Save Money, Simplify Your Life, and Build Community, which is a practical and legal guide to cooperating and sharing resources of all kinds. Um, I do want to mention that uh, I I think it's incredible the amount of work uh, that Janelle has done as a pioneer here in this field. Uh, She just told me that she's turning 40 uh, later this year and uh, just want to really acknowledge her as uh, someone who's about my own age and who uh, really has brought this uh, vision into fruition of, of a more uh, sustainable, just um, sharing economy. So welcome, Janelle. Um, I would love to begin by hearing what you find most exciting about the work that you do. Thanks, Crystal. Um, well, I could tell you what I'm most excited about today, uh, this Monday, <laughs> because every day there's something else. We work, as Sustainable Economies Law Center, we work on many different facets of the economy, food, farming, energy, housing, and finance is kind of an overlay on all of these things, because trying to unlock capital and have channel it toward our local economies, um, it comes up in every, every realm of the economy, housing, energy, and so on. And we, for a few years ago, started looking at what are some untapped pools of capital that we could be drawing upon to start financing local worker cooperatives and energy cooperatives. And, you know, people's retirement savings, that's trillions of dollars in the United States that's tied up in Wall Street right now, which if you want to plan for your individual future, maybe maybe that's one way to do it. But collectively as a society to plan for our collective future in retirement, putting money on Wall Street is going to go nowhere for us. So we said, how can we unlock that 
gigantic pool of capital and start channeling it toward our local economies. And so we were researching different tools that people can use to basically have greater control over where their retirement savings is invested. Some people know about self-directed IRAs, individual retirement accounts. There's also uh, ways of self-directing 401ks, which are either employer plans or solo employer plans, like self-employed plans. And we thought, let's start educating people about these tools and giving people access to these tools so that more people can essentially have checkbook control over their retirement savings. And so we partnered up with Michael Schumann. He's an author who writes a lot about local economies. We partnered up also with a cooperative called Lift Economy that does small business advising and advising cooperatives. And we created a project called The Next Egg, which of course is a play on the nest egg, but the next egg of sort of like, all right, what are we gonna, how are we gonna plan for our retirement in the next economy? And it's an online network. First of all, it's the nextegg.org that we've created. So it's a community of, uh, right now, I think it's around 130 people who are sharing stories and learning together about self-directed retirement savings. But we're also getting a whole bunch of people right now this month to start self-directed retirement plans. And by doing it, we're trying to get 100 people at once. By doing 100 people at once, we were able to negotiate for really low-cost plan fees. And then also we're doing it as a community, which makes it fun and we're learning together. So it's a community of practice. So I'm actually starting my 401k this week, learning all the ropes, thinking about where I'm going to invest it. And I'm just excited to be doing it with a whole bunch of other people who are doing it as well. And I think 100 people doing this is going to give us a lot of fun stories to tell. And by early next year, we're hoping to get many, many more people doing it. So that's, that's really energizing to me right now. Love it. Thanks for sharing that. What an exciting way to uh, pool our resources and, and leverage our financial um, interests. You know, I see more and more people want to align their values with their money and, and yet it can be hard for the ordinary person to, to navigate. So this sounds like a great way for people to, to learn some more and, and really align their values with their money. Yeah. Yeah, and to make it fun. That's part of what we're doing. And actually, if, if people go on the nextegg.org, they're going to see some wild cartoons because it looks a little, someone said it looks like a cross between a finance website and a Dr. Seuss book. And part of it's just that we're trying to shake people out of some of the stress and intimidation they feel around money and managing their money. I, I personally don't love looking at my debt and bank accounts and dealing with all of that not my favorite thing to do, but knowing that I'm doing it with a bunch of other people and we're going to be sharing stories and I'm going to be drawing cartoons about it. Now I'm really excited about it. So I'm hoping that it's going to spur a lot of joy actually, as people are doing this. Mm, yes, that's what we want. More joy around finance and money. <laughs> and, uh, and I've never met a cartoonist, uh, especially who focuses on, on these areas. So uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your uh, use of, of cartoons and direct us to, to where to find uh, some of those great videos you've put together? Sure. So I, um, when I became a lawyer 12 years ago, I had this notion that I wanted to be a sharing lawyer. So a lawyer who focuses on sharing, um, like car sharing and community gardens and co-housing and worker cooperatives. These are all things that are communities harnessing their own resources and, and using them more effectively to meet everybody's needs. And so as a way to get my vision of a more sharing world out there as a lawyer, I started drawing cartoons about sharing of just like, I really wanted people to be able to visualize what does a more sharing world look like. And there was just something irresistible about drawing it, about how can we go from the year 2008 where any, everything was so stressful, there was growing awareness of climate change and then economic problems. And I really wanted to almost literally paint a picture of how can we go from where we are now to a world that's more beautiful and inclusive and thriving and abundant. And the cartoons were just how I started doing it. And it became my mode of communication for everything. And so since then, I've created a lot of um, presentations where I use cartoons and some of those I've turned into videos. And so there's um, the Sustainable Economies Law Center, my, non my nonprofit has a YouTube channel with some of those cartoons. Uh, my own YouTube channel, Janelle Orsi, 
actually, I don't know what my YouTube channel is called, but if you look for my, my name on YouTube, I have a playlist of cartoons and I also have started putting cartoons in legal documents, started doing this a few years ago because you know, the law, legal concepts, legal documents are so intimidating to people. And even I sometimes look at a long legal document and I just want to zone out. Like I do not want to just read pages and pages upon words. And I especially don't want to, if I think it's going to actually be hard to understand, which so many legal documents are. And so we actually, it started when um, some clients hired us to, it was an immigrant owned worker cooperative popsicle company. And they said, we want to hire you to create our operating agreement for our cooperative, which is basically bylaws. And then we want to hire you to teach a workshop so we understand our, our operating agreement. And in that moment, it clicked for me that this was a major problem, that you would hire a lawyer to write a legal document, and then you would hire the same lawyer to explain the legal document to you. And I just said, why can't it just be one and the same? Why can't the document itself explain itself and be an educational tool to help people understand the operating rules of their own cooperative? And so this is a, this is a document that's online. One of our websites is co-op.org org co-op so it's co-op with a dash in it co-oplaw.org and one of the tools on there is that early popsicle operating agreement that I made featuring cartoon popsicle people but what happened when I created that document full of cartoons is that the client really had a meaning ended up having a very meaningful grasp on their cooperative and how it worked and all the laws and the finances of it the governance and so on such that we had a very meaningful conversation and they were able to actively shape that document. And so since that happened a few years ago, I have been putting, cartoons have been sort of the basis for all legal documents, <coughs> excuse me, that I've been creating. And um, it's really, it's really shifted the relationship with clients such that they play a much more active role in in understanding and and shaping their own organizations. And so long story short, cartoons are kind of infused into everything that I do now. And it's making a huge difference as far as bringing the law and legal documents down to earth. Mm. Wow, it's so innovative really to engage the right hemisphere and the visual and just really uh, imagine it does make it more accessible to people who are intimidated by uh, so much legalese. Um, yeah, that's really exciting. Um, so curious about, um, you know, what over the last decade, you just uh, celebrated your 10 years um, at the uh, since founding Sustainable Economies Law Center. And just curious if you could tell us a little bit more about what you've seen change in in the last decade in this field. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, and I have been reflecting on that quite a bit lately, because there are ways in which I had hoped to get to this point and see so much more change, you know. Uh, for example, I support the development of worker-owned cooperatives in the Bay Area. When I started doing this work 10 or 12 years ago, there were about 40 worker cooperatives, and now there's only about 80 or 90. So, I mean, I was just thinking that by now there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. So there are ways in which I look at where we're at now and I'm disappointed, but on the other hand, I also have this sense that suddenly things are picking up momentum. And in many ways, like the, the feeling of the work that I've been doing for the last 10 years, it often feels like pushing a ball up a hill, that there's a lot of resistance. And the resistance comes in the form of people not understanding what we're doing, not understanding the value of it. Um, regulators, banks not understanding what cooperatives are, for example lack of access to capital for the work that we're doing. You know, there's just so many barriers that made so many parts of it feel like an uphill battle. But now the way that things tend to play out when we start new projects or support new clients is that things pick up momentum way faster than they than we thought they would. And I feel kind of like I'm chasing many, many balls down hills now of just like, wow, we started this new cooperative and suddenly hundreds of people are wanting to join it. it it's that kind of momentum that picks up and it, it kind of feels like the ecosystem is becoming so robust 
uh, as far as the number of people doing this work, the number of organizations that exist to support it, um, that things pick up momentum much more naturally. I also look, think of it as a puzzle where um, 10 years ago, there were just a few pieces in place and you really valued each one of those pieces. Like every person that I met who told me they were interested in something like urban farming or solar cooperatives, I would really cling to those people for life. I'm like, you know what a cooperative is? I like cooperatives. Let's have coffee. Let's be best friends. And now it's just, we're surrounded by people who are like that. And it's like the pieces of the puzzle are falling into place to the point where I feel like there's a picture that's coming into view where full systems transformation is it's within reach and and there are many ways in which I feel like it's already here and that's because of the momentum that I see um, picking up it's because I see people so happy about the work they're doing like they tell me about something they've started and they have a sparkle in their eye because they know it's the right thing to do and they know it's going to work and they're getting a lot of kudos for it and feeling very connected in it so that's all a way of saying i think the the ecosystem has shifted quite a bit in 10 years and depending on how you look at it it may not feel that way but it in many ways it, it has yeah that's so exciting to hear i i see we're also experiencing uh not only a systemic shift, but also a cultural and psychological shift of people who are engaging in the sharing economy. And I'd like to see if you have um, a story or any experience of like, what, what happens to people when they go from just being consumers, essentially, in the modern economy to really becoming invested in their uh, endeavors in a new way in the sharing economy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a couple examples um, of cooperatives that we helped to incubate over the last few years. And one of them is called the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. The other is called the People Power Solar Cooperative. But most people think of housing cooperatives and solar cooperatives, or I should say energy cooperatives. Uh, most people think of those as consumer cooperatives, meaning the members of those cooperatives are there to consume the good or service of the cooperative, like a housing cooperative is owned by the residents. An energy cooperative is owned by the people who get electricity from the cooperative. But these two cooperatives have a much broader scope and we like to refer to them as movement cooperatives, meaning they don't just exist to provide housing and energy to people as consumers. They exist to build a movement that transforms our relationship to real estate and to power, well, electricity. And so each of them has more than 100 members, and these are people who have put their money into the cooperative. They're people who are actively organizing real estate projects, housing and commercial real estate, or they're actively organizing solar projects because they want that transformation to happen. And I also think that the people are getting involved because it's so dang fun. They're just events, there's potlucks, there's economic salons, there's community owner meetings, there's just so many opportunities for people to come together and connect with each other and envision a new world and, and start making it happen together. And that's the role that these cooperatives are serving. And I just, I'm astounded by how motivated people are to be involved, even if they're not a resident of the real estate cooperative, even if they're not getting their electricity from the solar cooperative yet. Um, and so I think it's just a willingness of people to stop paying attention solely to the transactions of like, well, what do I get by joining this cooperative? What return on investment do I get? How cheap is the electricity? People, these are important questions, but they're not apparently the most important questions to the people who are getting involved. And it's about the connection and it's about the potential for transformation that's really driving people. Mm, yes. Yeah. That desire for belonging. That's, yes. uh, that's really, you know, we see so much isolation and despair in, in, as a result of the modern economy in many ways, you know, mm -hmm. reducing us to, um, you know, uh, competitive, <laughs> rational uh, calculators of economic value. Um, so I feel like, yeah, people really are coming alive through these, uh, through the sharing economy. And 
And uh, I'm curious your thoughts on how it's affected uh, marginalized populations, uh, say, you know, minorities or women who are uh, having newfound power through this type of uh, solidarity. Yeah. Well, I think it's so liberating when people of all walks of life start to point to the system as a whole as the source of the problem. And then like people who have been marginalized by the system, so often we focus on an individual and their downfalls of just like, here's why you don't have enough money or here's why you don't have a good job or stable housing. And and we tend to focus on that as a individual problem more than a systemic one. But now there's just so much more willingness to look at the systems that have created poverty and the systems that have set into motion inequality and to have so many people come together and say, all right, we're ready to abandon this system. And and we're taking a leap. It's like we are stepping out of one system without the new system being completely in place. But I think the beautiful thing is as we're creating these new systems of like, what does real estate look like? Like for example, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, we have described that as a POC-centered, people of color-centered organization and actually really focused on black and indigenous people of color um, as the primary focal point and the leadership of that cooperative. And so as we're building the new systems, it's creating space to center people, cultures, languages, races, classes, who just had not been at the center of the old system. And I think if we were trying to work within the old system and bring marginalized communities to the center, that would take way too too long. It's just like, it takes old institutions so long to transform, to move people at the bottom up the hierarchy can take can take years, decades, generations. And so to be starting fresh and saying, oh, this is a completely new take on energy or real estate, and it's centering communities of color. We're training up people who may or may not have, say, gone to college or may or may not have a law degree, but we're training everybody about law and we're training everybody about finance because everybody can be contributing to shaping this organization. And I just, I think it feels so liberating. Mm, yes, I I agree. There's, uh, you know, there's so much poverty shaming of, of individuals and even the kind of new age spiritual thing of, you know, say, say some mantras and, and you can be rich too. It's uh, really fails to, to take in account the systemic reality of uh, wealth inequality and, and the consolidation of, of power largely in white male hands and uh, especially when we're talking about legal and economics uh, and those areas so I just imagine that that this is such a different approach than charity too it's saying hey let's just empower these people to help themselves and they already have the power we're just giving them some structure and tools to to really create more vibrant economies right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I like what you said about the charity model too I think the thing about charities and it's sort of an inherent flaw in how we've designed them legally as 501c3 nonprofits is that they're designed for one group of people to help another group of people. They're not designed for a group of people to help themselves. And it's sort of in the legal design of them. We're supposed to have um, financially disinterested governance um, providing for a group of people that have been identified is poor, distressed, or underprivileged. And it's so disempowering, I think, to be on either end of that. Um, Whereas cooperatives and mutuals, these are self-help organizations. These are people coming together to say, what resources do we have? How can we maximize them to benefit all of us together? It's not waiting for somebody else to provide for you, or it's not in a sort of paternalistic model of looking for somebody else to provide for. It's us providing providing for us. And that's so motivating to people. It's very, it's intrinsically motivating for people to come together and provide for themselves. And I think that intrinsic motivation is one of the most powerful sources of energy and drive we have for a social change movement. So really activating social change through cooperatives and mutual aid organizations is going to be powerful. 
Mm. Yes. And I really hear that the work you're doing is helping people come into right relation and create healthy relationships with the land they depend on, with other people. And, you know, a, a foundation of a healthy relationship, I believe, is, is transparency and how we can communicate with each other. And I imagine that this is uh, a crucial part of, of these uh, models, the land trust, the cooperatives, is really having more open transparent conversations, especially about money. And I'm curious uh, what you have to say about the importance of, uh, yeah, talking more openly about money and how these, uh, the culture within these organizations really fosters that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, one part of it is we're really, we are really trying to create organizations where people bring their whole human selves to work and where the, the types of affection, connection, care, and relationship that you get in the household, through the family, through friends, also shows up within these organizations. And in fact, that kind of care and connection is, is what, it, it's also, it's part of what motivates people to show up and do the work of social change. And in our own organization, the Sustainable Economies Law Center, we are a nonprofit organization, but we're structured very much like a cooperative. Uh, and we're really trying to spread a model where nonprofits and change-making organizations everywhere adopt more collective governance models, particularly for the workers, the people who show up every day and dedicate the majority of their waking hours to the effort. And we have cultivated an environment where everybody is able to take a lot of leadership in their work. Um, we also have equal pay in the workplace. So everybody at Sustainable Economies Law Center right now makes $60,000 a year. And doing this has helped us all, well, view each other as peers, as opposed to say competitors in a hierarchical system, um, but also just bring and be a lot more open about our human needs and the fact that even in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, $60,000 is, it's, it's stressful to try to live on that much. But at the same time, as an organization, we, um, we have, we're strained for resources. We're always fundraising. We're always trying to think about diversifying our income sources, but we're working on this together. And I think one thing that's happened in our organization is just everybody is a lot more aware of the finances of our organization, how money flows in, where it comes from where money is going, as in where we're spending it. Um, everybody takes a lot more responsibility for earning the money, raising the money. Um, and we make the major financial decisions collectively. And so I think that fosters a much healthier organization financially. And we've been really trying to support our clients to adopt that degree of financial transparency uh, so that people can talk more openly about their needs and the stresses that come up. Um, and so in one part of this, and this also feeds very nicely into something that we as a society need to do better, which is just empower everybody with a lot more um, financial literacy, particularly for how finances work within the organizations that they're part of. Because if we're going to unlock capital, if we're going to get trillions of dollars out of Wall Street and start channeling them to locally owned enterprises, to worker cooperatives, to real estate cooperatives, those cooperatives need to be ready to receive that money. They need to be ready to tell a story and set an expectation of we're going to take your money as an investment we're going to apply it toward this enterprise and then we're going to earn money and pay it back to you. And so you, you really need to have an organization of people who are empowered to tell that story, to say, here's how we're going to bring the money in. Here's how we're going to spend it. Here's how we're going to pay a return to our investors. And that is really largely about communication and understanding. So if people understand how money flows in and out of their own organization, then they can better communicate it to potential investors but until we do that, what's happening is cooperatives that want to raise capital through crowd financing, um, typically what they do, or really any, any enterprise that wants to do an offering to the public and take investment capital from the public, tend to hire both a lawyer and an accountant, a CPA, to prepare audited financial statements and then a really long 
offering document or prospectus. Basically, it could be roughly 40 pages of text that describes the business model, describes the risks, and so on. And then a lot of times the people who are investing hire another professional, like a financial advisor, to interpret the financial statements and interpret the offering document and tell them whether to invest. And so you end up with three professionals involved speaking professional speak. And what you don't have is an enterprise that's able to just effectively and directly communicate to investors, here's our business, here's what we're going to do with your money, here's what you should expect. And I think building the financial literacy of everybody within an organization is going to get us a lot closer to that direct relationship, direct communication between an enterprise and an investor. And, and viewing every individual as an investor, so not investors as in wealthy people, but everyday people who are going to get their money out of Wall Street and invest it in local enterprises. Mm, wow. Yeah, that's such an important uh, reframe of the word investor and, uh, and also just great points about the importance of us individually and collectively really being able to speak about money more openly and love how you're uh, really, you know, uh, walking the talk there at your organization with that transparency of salaries and um, I just can't help but think this, uh, these types of organizations will create greater resilience in our communities. You know, say there is another economic downturn, which I see is inevitable in, in some ways. Um, it, you know, how, how have we seen these uh, cooperatives and other uh, parts of the sharing economy fare in, uh, in uh, rocky situations like in 2008? Um, do you have anything to say about how uh, the sharing economy creates greater resilience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, when people are collectively making the decisions in a place of crisis, I think the solutions are so much richer than if somebody at the top of a hierarchy is making those decisions. And so a conventional corporation with a CEO and board of directors, if it's experiencing financial troubles, tends to just lay people off. And without a lot of sensitivity, not without asking people of like, hey, how can, how can we problem solve here and create resilience for everyone? They just tend to slash people um, and cut jobs. One example I love is the cooperatives in Spain in the Mondragon region, uh, which in the Basque region of Spain. Um, the Mondragon cooperatives are, um, it's a network of cooperatives and all tied together with various support institutions like a university and a bank. But since there were multiple worker cooperatives during the financial downturn, they took a very big picture look at that and said, all right, we need to maybe reduce some salaries, reduce the number of jobs. But since everybody participated, I don't know if everybody, but many, many voices participated in that conversation, they were ultimately able to do some restructuring, a little bit of consolidation, uh, give some people some early retirement such that nobody was involuntarily fired. Um, and so similarly in our organization, we've made a collective agreement where if we have a financial shortfall, we would rather than cut any jobs, we would just collectively reduce our salaries or have a conversation about, well, is there anybody here who could go part-time or is there anybody here who could take a salary cut for a while? We'd have a conversation about it rather than just lay somebody off. And I think when you tap the wisdom of a group of people, then you're tapping into infinite resourcefulness, infinite creativity to problem solve in a way that's going to still be able to sustain and nourish people and keep them connected to each other. And so I think that's what the sharing economy as a whole, that's the potential that's held within a more sharing economy and within a more democratic economy is infinite problem solving as opposed to one decision maker at the top thinking they know what's right for everybody. So. Yeah, this is the kind of world I want for my kids. Right. I just, it's, 
It makes so much sense as you explain it. And I think these non-hierarchical forms of organizational structure, decision-making, power sharing, economic uh, responsibility are essential for being able to navigate the kinds of change that we are facing as as a culture and and I do see it as a more feminine way of of organizing uh, that is um, you know both men and women are are leading this cause but able to really uh, prioritize relationships and and see the good of the whole and have a more flat organizational structure um, and I'm curious if you wanted to say anything about being uh, woman and a leader in a very male-dominated field, um, anything you'd like to say, like qualities that you feel uh, are, are unique or uh, useful mm-hmm. in your leadership? Yeah. Um, I've been feeling this a lot lately, too, because I've been personally delving a lot more deeply into the world of finance because my work has spanned over the last 10 years, I've personally been, been involved in a lot of food and farming regulatory work, work related to soil, to energy, to housing, um, and it's, oh, and governance, organizational governance. But now that I'm really personally focused in my work on things related to tax, finance, retirement savings, investment, securities, I end up interacting with, interacting with a lot more men, a lot more white men um, who often have professional degrees. and it's um i've noticed a number of times how much people in the world of finance um speak in a way that intimidates others <laughs> and um and there is a way where speaking with women in the world of finance has just been like a breath of fresh air like there's often like there's a de- desire to connect. There's a desire to foster understanding in the conversation as opposed to like, I don't know, intimidate or hide information. And, and it's not a general rule that men and women are different in this way, but it's been my experience lately of having conversations with men and just sort of feeling like, oh, where did that leave us? But then, then having conversations with women and feeling like, okay, no, there is something there is something good and possible here of like, let's turn finance and accounting and tax and securities into something that is about communication. Cause that so much of it is really about communication. It's about people understanding the resources available to them and the flow of resources and let's bring it down to earth so that we're, when we're having a conversation about it, that it's nurturing to people, it's nurturing understanding and giving people a sense of what's possible. Um, so this is, motiv- it's really motivating to me, like in the next year, chances are I'm going to be drawing a lot of cartoons about finance, and I'm going to be bringing a lot more women into the fold to be part of the projects that I'm working on and the conversations I'm having, because I really want to shift the tone of finance and have it be a lot more nurturing. And there is something that's just bringing out the feminine a lot more in the world of finance that I, I sort of feel like that that's the tone of the approach I'm going to be taking the next year in my work. Oh, I can so relate. Uh, you know, I got my degree in international economics in 2007 and just remember sitting through that history of economics class thinking, where are all the women? Like these are all these old white guys. It's a very mechanical view that like leaves out our emotional you know, uh, motivations. And it was just mm-hmm. such a dry uh, look at, at the way people operate, which mm-hmm. really felt like mm-hmm. removed from our actual experience. And so yeah. I love those words of empathy and understanding and really being able to uh, communicate clearly. And uh, I really appreciate what you uh, just just shared there. I you, I like to say that the economy is a place where we come together to care for one another. Mm-hmm. At its essence, it does have this feminine, uh, I heard Bernard Lee Terre, the econ- great uh, economist, describe it 
with the great mother archetype of providing for each mm -hmm. other and and that but I, I really want to bring the heart back into economics so we can mm -hmm. connect with that feeling that we are all safe and we belong and we're going to take care of each other mm -hmm. yeah I love that it's beautiful yeah. So I'm so curious about your own uh, personal money journey and uh, how how you got into this work and uh, what you would like to share about, you know, any pivotal moments that really changed your belief about money and finance and uh, and brought you into this work. Yeah. Well, you know, I when I first became a lawyer, I took the path that most lawyers do not take. Um, I went to Berkeley Law School, and most people coming out of Berkeley Law School get jobs, and they get fairly well-paying jobs. And I think I was one of only two people in my entire class of 300 plus who actually started their own law practice right out of law school. And it, for me, it was a private practice where I focused on sharing and cooperatives and co-housing. And because I was doing that and starting my own business, I, I recognized I'm going to have to live quite simply as in order to be able to get this going. Um, I didn't want to borrow too much money. I borrowed a little bit uh, to get things started and built up a little bit of credit card debt in the first two years of just, you know, before the income really started to flow in. But I did adopt a fairly simple and frugal lifestyle, which was, it's been so empowering because in many ways I've retained a lot of the qualities of that simple frugal lifestyle, even now that I have a more stable income years later. Um, but because of that, because of my simple lifestyle, it, it's actually given me a lot of money in a sense to play with of, at times when I have more money and I see a project in the community that I'm really inspired by, I might donate to it. Uh, I've also been able to start projects because I just sort of feel like this is a, this is a project that our community needs. So I, for example, a couple of years ago, I put some money behind a project I called Co-opivore, which is trying to get people to buy their food from worker-owned cooperatives. And I was really trying to get people aware of a local worker owned grocery store and to spend their money there. And so I was able to invest a little just of my personal money, basically give my personal money to that project. Um, and so, yeah, living simply has actually given me a lot of room to move and be creative and to sometimes be whimsical and invest or give my money to things that I'm excited about. Um, but I've also, now I'm about to try. 40 and I'm also thinking about retirement savings and how do I want to plan for my future and I've I've had to have you know think about how much wealth do I want to accumulate and how much do I am I going to need by the time I retire and there's one way in which you know looking at conventional wisdom around of around planning for the future is just not helpful right now you know we've been given that 2030 deadline to reverse change. There's also this article in National Geographic that's the title of which is something like seafood will likely be gone by the year 2048, like seafood, fish in the ocean. It's just a whole different world. It's just a completely different planet that I'm going to be retiring on. So in the year 2048, I'll be 68 and I'll probably be thinking about retirement, but I'll be retiring into a world without fish. And so to me, that's just, that changes the whole game. I'm just like, I do not want a single one of my dollars, either that I spend or that I save, I do not want a single one of my dollars contributing to that world that is destroying our oceans or that is continuing to fuel climate change or that is continuing to fuel inequality because there's just going to be crisis after crisis between now and when I retire and beyond if we don't if we don't just basically pull every dollar we have out of that old system. And so for me, it, it that where I choose to spend my money, I'm extremely careful about that. Like I do not want to give dollars to big corporations that have no regard for our planet. And then for when it comes to my retirement, so like I said, I'm starting my 401k this week. I'm going to be, I'm going to be rolling over my IRA into it, but in total, I only have about $10,000 in retirement savings right now. It's not, to, not a lot to work with, um, but I am going to be just in, 
working in enterprises that are creating the future that I could potentially retire in. I'm, in, I'm gonna invest in one organization called California FarmLink that finances farmland for people doing sustainable agriculture, particularly disadvantaged farmers. I'm gonna invest in the two organizations I mentioned earlier, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative and the People Power Solar Cooperative, because they're creating a more sustainable nurturing economy here in the East Bay where I live. Um, and I'm going to just invest in anything else I can think of that's supporting the thriving of life. And if for whatever reason, these things don't work out and I get to the year 2048, uh, and my retirement savings, if, if it's not there, if these were such high risk investments that I didn't get my money back, it's probably also because there's no fish in the sea. And that's just a really unfortunate future, but I'm just like, I'm willing to put all my money right now behind the things that I know are gonna create a thriving future or the things that have the greatest possibility of creating a thriving future. So that's my attitude. It means I'm taking risks. Like a conventional financial advisor would tell me what you're doing right now is risky, but I think what's more risky is to not do what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, oh, so agree. Um, and, and really wanna remind listeners too that uh, look at where your money sleeps at night and uh, consider a local credit union and, and moving your money out of some of the big banks uh, which leverage that for often destructive uh, projects. And, uh, and I really think that all of our individual actions do, uh, do make a difference and, uh, you know, and um, ultimately also, you know, we talk about security. It's like this elusive thing and people think money will buy them security. And then in 2008, we saw so much of that people's um, retirement funds evaporate overnight. And and so there's, uh, you know, a more holistic picture of, of what really provides security, our relationships, our, our skills of being able to grow our own food, know where our, you know, water sources are and, and who in our community really has the skills that we can depend on um, if there is disruption and supply chains and, and such things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious who else is uh, influencing your thought right now along these themes we've been discussing, you know, any books, podcasts, or uh, people you'd like to uh, recommend we check out? Yeah, let's see. Oh, you know, I'm really enjoying a book. It's a little bit of an older book right now um, called The Gift by Lewis Hyde. It's just such a beautifully written book. But what he does in that book is look at gift-based cultures and communities around the world and just talk about what is it that what is it that activates and sustains a community of people who give to each other without this sort of transactional mindset of like of trying to count the value of everything that they have and to commodify it and to trade it and to get profit from it but rather what activates in people a sense of connection and trust and abundance such that they can give and also receive with a feeling of trust that we are all going to be provided for. So there's something about reading that book that just makes me feel like everything we're doing is possible because it has been possible throughout time and th throughout the world that people have nourished gift-based communities in that way. Um, and I just, I kind of need that on an everyday basis because I, I meet with resistance of people saying, well, what do I get? What's my return on investment? How much does this cost? There's a lot of people counting and calculating what's in it for them. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of fear and a lot of sense of scarcity that we need to grapple with. Um, so it helps me to just read that book and it, calms me and reminds me that what we're doing is possible. I'm also reading two books at the same time. I like to go back and forth between them um, by the same author, Adrian Mari Brown. One is called Emergent Strategy. The other is called Pleasure Activism. But she, <coughs> how to describe these books? And it's again, it's like she's living in the now, in our current social justice movements, and giving a lot of anecdotes and examples of what does it look like when these movements can truly nourish us and 
what does it look like when the people involved in them can bring their full selves to that work and feel human and feel joy and feel creativity. And so emergent strategy looks a lot at like, what is the structure of organizations? What's the culture of organizations we create? And then her book, Pleasure Activism, which just came out and it's a New York Times bestseller, which tells me that it's going to have an impact. Um, the premise of that book is, if I could do it justice, I probably can, but she really says our movements for social justice should be the most pleasurable thing that we do and that we can think of, um, which really does mean like bringing our full human selves, like our, our desires, our needs, our longings to the work we do and have that work fulfill it. Um, and prioritizing our humanness and not settling for things that feel bad, not settling for burnout culture within our social justice movements. Because if, if we're doing the work of law and social change, and if we're, allowing, if we're allowing it to be dry and boring, or if we're allowing it to be stressful and burnout inducing, it's not going to bring the number, it's not going to build to scale. It won't be scalable. It won't bring the number of people that we need to come to this work. And so she's like, let's put pleasure first. Let's put joy first in all of this work. And that for me is just really, it's really energizing me right now. And it's fueling, particularly in the context of me doing work that's mostly tax accounting, finance and securities work of say, asking myself, what does pleasure and joy look like in the context of this work? And I'm really motivated by that. Um, so yeah, all, all three of those books, I'm kind of reading them all at once right now. And it's feeding me. It's nourishing me. Mm, I love that. Yeah, she is such an inspiration, and and so important to to reframe what is possible when we access this greater creativity and pleasure and uh, inspiration within ourselves through connecting in really healthy uh, ways with each other. And um, yeah. Let's imagine, uh, you know, bring it full circle to reflecting on the last 10 years and imagine another decade or so in the future and say the sharing economy has really taken off and we see it flourishing everywhere and more and more people have um, extracted themselves from the um, kind of abusive ec economic system um, and, and it, it paint a picture for us of, of what kind of experience people are having as they are living in more and more of the sharing economy in a decade or so. Mm. Well, I think my hope is that every person will have some community that they are part of that they can think about. Like in the moment when things are stressful, challenging, scary, when there's crises or disasters, just that everybody has a community that helps root them uh, and feel connected and feel comfort and joy. And that community may not be, it may not look like the traditional household um, or a neighborhood. It might look like your solar cooperative that you're very active in. It could look like a childcare cooperative or your co-housing community or the worker cooperative that you work for. Uh, it could be even your credit union, like a financial institution that you're really involved in, that these are all institutions or communities that we think of not just to provide for us material, but materially, but that provide for us emotionally, spiritually, that make us feel connected and feel comfort and joy in, in all of that. And um, I have a feeling that not only people people will have more than one of those communities in their world that they'll that we will each be part of many small circles of individuals who come together nourish each other and then physically materially nourish each other and provide for each other and so i i see a world where people are in shared housing communities where they also share meals where their access to transportation might be through car sharing projects where their workplaces are collectively governed and people feel a sense of power and agency in their own workplaces. Um, and that's, that's the world that I'm starting to feel for myself. And I'm surrounded by people who feel that too. Like I go to work every day feeling so fed by my work, not just 
the content of the work that I'm doing, but the people that I'm working with. And then I'm part of the real estate cooperative. I'm part of the solar cooperative. Uh, I'm just coming to be part of many communities of people who, who just give me so much joy. This group of people that I'm starting the 401k with, like we're all going to be learning about 401ks and investing together. And I already feel like this is a new group of friends for me and I'm happy to have these new friends. And I think that's the structure that we're creating for everybody. I think that so many more people are going to have that. Mm, yeah, right there with you. That's, that's the world I imagine too. And uh, I just love how you're so in integrity with, uh, you know, aligning your personal life with your, uh, your own uh, values and, and your work and, and so really showing people what's possible and how we can thrive in a new way. Like you said, it can be scary. It can feel like more risk uh, to, to join some of these uh, uh, alternative, well, whatever that means, but other systems of, of sharing that are not so mainstream. And so I really feel like as people yeah, let their hearts follow them more into the and and become more engaged as as citizens and uh, and really are able to connect with people on a deep and meaningful level to create value and to regenerate their the planet and and our um, our society as well. I just see there's a lot of potential. Um, I'm curious uh, if you have a key message that you want to share with us. A key message. Hmm. Well, I feel like I've been able to say a lot of key things, so that feels good already. Um, here's one more, because we haven't brought it up yet, um, which is just, what is our relationship to land as humans? Um, we've talked a lot about actually our relationship to each other, like building human communities, but what is our relationship to land and housing? And I... Um, I've been experimenting. This is a cartoon I drew the other day, and I'm trying to think, should I make this into a movie? But, you know, it, the legal system in many countries does not allow human beings to sell their organs. Like, you can't go sell off part of your liver or your kidney, uh, because otherwise people in very desperate or destitute situations would feel potentially coerced into doing that. And so I feel like I want to create a world where we have a similar attitude about the earth and its land, as in we should not be selling off land for any purpose, particularly for profit, on a planet where we've realized this is a single living system, like the ecosystems and the climate of the earth, it's all so interconnected. We need to treat it as a, as a single living being and that every piece of land on earth, in many ways, we need to think of this as the organs of our planet it's how our earth breathes and create creates oxygen like the soil is a mechanism by which we digest the earth digests and then creates energy for itself and if we continue to treat land as a commodity that people can just freely sell off to the highest bidder then we're losing a huge opportunity to reconnect rebuild our relationship to the earth to steward it and to nourish its living breathing body and to, to nourish its organs. And so really getting people to start looking at private property ownership as a predicament that we've created for ourselves and to start thinking about how can we start to rebuild a commons where we all develop a much more nurturing and affectionate relationship with land and collectively steward it in the long term rather than just assume that everybody who's a private property owner has the has the free ability to just sell it to the highest bidder that's going to take a huge cultural shift because so many people put their financial stability in in the expectation that they can eventually sell their homes in a speculative market uh, so to get us away from that, that's going to be a huge deal. That's going to require a huge cultural shift. But I do think it's going to be one of the most profoundly transformative shifts that we make because, again, it, it requires that we turn to each other to provide for us in the long term. Stop thinking of our homes as a commodity we can sell to sustain us in the future and instead look at our community as the thing that will sustain us in the future, but also reconnecting to the land in a way of like, what can we do to rebuild the sponginess of our soil and to rebuild the diversity of 
microorganisms in the soil and to nourish the diversity of plants that are growing here and to nourish the community that lives here. Um, mm. I think that's just going to make, that's going to just be a much more beautiful world, but also one of the biggest challenges we face as a society is rethinking private property ownership. Yes. Oh, such a key conversation. Thanks for um, illuminating that for, for us. Um, uh, so as we draw to a close here, I'm, I'm curious if there's any uh, closing uh, thoughts you have. Any closing thoughts? I kind of feel like I've said a lot of things and I'm passionate about it. I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to do that because I think about these things a lot. I live by them as much as I can. And I'm just, yeah, really grateful for the opportunity to share it. So thank you, Crystal. Yeah, well, thank you so much for sharing your inspiration, your uh, wealth of knowledge around these topics for really allowing people to uh, to have real uh, structures that uh, really support their um, their values and their ability to uh, to connect with others and and create uh, value. I just so appreciate what you're doing. Oh, would you also uh, share some of your websites here for yeah. listeners? So the website for the Sustainable Economies Law Center is theselk.org. So t h e s e l c dot org. Um, and then from there, you can link to a lot of resources that we've created, like the one I mentioned before, cooplaw.org, um, which is our resource for especially worker-owned cooperatives. Um, another one that I had mentioned is thenextegg.org, so T-H-E-N-E-X-T-E-G-G.org, and that's the community that we're building around um, redirecting retirement savings to our local communities. And then um, what else? Definitely encourage people to look up the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, the People Power Solar Cooperative. Both of those organizations, by the way, have cartoon bylaws, which you can find on those websites. And I know there's other emerging cooperatives now around the country that are using those bylaws as the basis of structuring their own organizations. So these are both models that we view as replicable. And um, so definitely check those out. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much and really encourage people to uh, find a new appreciation of money and law through your cartoons and uh, just really appreciate your innovative approaches and education around the sharing economy. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here with us today. For listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.